It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello, I'm back and I'm bad. You're bad as well. Well, no, I'm back and I'm good, actually. Isn't that a slogan? It's all sort of saying, I'm back and I'm bad. Well, if it's not a saying, it should be. You could pepper your speeches with it. How was Liverpool? How was your conference? It seems, from the outsider perspective, that it went well. Yes. Uh, your, your speech seemed to go down well. Yes. People were tweeting about it. Clips were going viral. I will get around to watching it. You've not watched it? I've, I've watched, watched a little bit of it. How much of it have you watched? More than a minute. I think, in a way, it's quite a good... You're doing this because it's quite a good salutary reminder that the conference is a bit of a bubble. I've been aware that it's going on. I googled your name. People were writing nice things about it. Had a look on Twitter. But yeah, you're happy with it? Yeah, it went well. Lots of my um, policy at the centre of it. 2030 Clean Power, National Wealth Fund, GB Energy. And you didn't bring on Justine at the end, did you? I didn't know. Because that's something politicians sometimes do that I've never understood. We used, we, we, yeah, we, we used to do that. Was that an easy ask in the marriage? I don't think she's was that keen on it in retrospect. It's really weird. You wouldn't do a business presentation and then bring on your <sighs> spouse at the end of it. No, I know. But if you're running to be prime minister, it's slightly different. Maybe a good compromise would be you could bring on your podcast spouse <laughs> at the end of it. I could look up proudly honestly, at you. That would have been wave. That would have been honestly hilarious. <laughs> I mean, what would we have done in the sort of "well done" kiss moment? We would sort of hugged. Yeah, or, or a continental style kiss. Continental style kiss. Three yes. kisses. Yes. I've worked out that I've been at twenty-five. I actually thought it was twenty-eight, but I've since worked out it's twenty-five Labour Party conferences. I've spent an average of five days at each Labour Party conference. That's one hundred and twenty-five days. That is approximately eighteen weeks. That means I've spent four and a half months of my life at Labour Party conference. <laughs> I mean, that's quite a long part of your life to have spent at a conference, isn't it? Do you keep all your lanyards like when people keep the wristbands somebody from Glastonbury? Asked, somebody asked me that. I don't. 
I do keep stuff, but not that. Do you think we should be talking about what's happened outside the Low Buddy Conference? The danger with that is we're recording this on Thursday. I mean, yeah. who knows what it's going to look oh, like no. by Monday? Can I just be sort of, I'll be the sort of Treasury former special advisor nerd for a minute. You know what is the most extraordinary thing about the budget, to budget, not budget? People say, well, they've stopped the Office of Budget Responsibility from doing their forecasts and all that. Now, that is a big departure from the last 10 years. But I was sitting next to Rachel Reeves when she was doing the response and Rachel was making this point. And then Liz Truss started saying, oh, you know, Labour never had any budgets with an Office of Budget Responsibility. That is true. But that is, in a way, highlights the fact that, a sort of, that the Office of Budget Responsibility issue is more current manifestation of the, of the bigger issue, which is they presented a budget without any numbers for what was going to happen to public borrowing or growth without a forecast that is just literally like going to the restaurant um and them offering you a menu and having no prices and then when you say what are the prices they say well sorry we can't tell you what the price of the of this is you'll find out at the end when you get the bill i think i was saying to the political of the financial times at the conference i was saying when was the last time someone did a budget without these numbers i mean it must be like 200 years ago or 100 years i mean i can't emphasize to you enough how peculiar it is or it's like you go into the supermarket and they're like oh we don't have the prices on any of our goods today people like politicians to be relatable and it it certainly reminds me of how i conduct my own personal finance well that might be true (laughs) so So, i mean it's not surprising that the markets have reacted very badly and then the second thing is there's basically three interlocking things that i think have caused this one or maybe four massive tax cuts without a sense of how they're going to be funded two they're not providing the borrowing numbers that's i think the biggest issue third it turns out that the markets don't believe the sun trickle down theory which the government's putting forward you know that if you just cut taxes at the top everything will be fine and then fourth him going on the television on sunday uh, as the house was on fire and then pouring some more petrol on by saying there's more to come I can't emphasise to you enough how extraordinary it is and how what a level of arrogance on the part of Quasi Quateng it connotes. Because the idea that you'd have done that, Gordon was a fairly determined fellow, as you know, but the idea that he'd have walked into the Treasury on day one and said, OK, well, we're going to do a budget, but we're not going to present any numbers. It's a sort of millwall. You know, people hate us and we don't care. And by the way, this is apart from the terrible inequity of the budget. I mean, the inequity is terrible. It's just that they've piled incompetence on inequity. I'm buying a wheelbarrow for my banknotes. (laughs) You think I'll need one? No, I think we're not quite at that stage. Um, Now, shall we talk about what we're talking about? Yes. This week, we're talking about inequalities in women's health. Now, back in May, we did an episode all about health inequalities, which was really eye-opening. But I think that episode made us realise that there's just so much more to explore. And the UK has the largest gender health gap in the G20, meaning that women spend more of their lives in poor health than men. And we're going to try and find out why that is uh, with Dr Larissa Corder, who is a gynaecologist and obstetrician. Uh, and then we're going to go back in time. We always enjoy talking to historians and look at some of the history of this with Dr. Eleanor Cleghorn. And then finally, a bit of a reason to be cheerful with India Rackerson, who has made a podcast for BBC Sounds on menstruation, which is really good. Are you, are you ready for the ride? Ready for the ride. And not only that, last week we said, 
It was our fifth anniversary. Yes. We, we quite like to freshen yes. the podcast up a bit. And a way in which we could do that is getting you, our listeners, to come up with new theme music for us. So to, to give you some pointers on that, we have a theme music maestro, the man behind the Strictly Come Dancing theme music, Dan McGrath, who is going to be giving us some advice on what makes is he a good theme here? tune. He's going to be on Zoom. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. We're talking TV themes with a man who knows a lot about the subject. A man who knows. Mm. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, it's a, it's a musical one, actually. Go on. Uh, I went to see the London Symphony Orchestra at the weekend. Wow. You're looking at me that that's more, uh, like that's something that's more highbrow than I would usually do. It's like me going to the dance floor of ABBA mm. Voyage, isn't it? I mean, they were playing along with Return of the Jedi. Oh, right, I see. Was it good? Yeah, it was. Yeah, we took Jean. And I loved, I loved it. It was, it was a really special thing at the Royal Albert Hall in London. Something I've been wondering about, do you think conductors, it's, it's just a big racket, it's a big sham? They just sort of wave their arms around. So they go, they go yeah. one, two, three, four, yeah. and everybody knows when to start. And then these are highly trained musicians. They've got the music in front uh, of them. I agree. It's saying when to play loud, when to play soft. That Presumably, if you're that highly trained, you can stay in time with each other. You don't see conductors in other genres of music. I, f- I fear the conductor community will be alienated by your comments. But I wonder Jeff. if the musician community are going to really like the truth-telling aspect of this. I think I'm going to let it just hang out there. I don't think I'm going to support you, I'm afraid. Think what it must think, feel like, though. If you, you, you had took violin lessons as a kid. Yes. I tell you, I could have done with some conducting. <laughs> now, I told you this, the story about this. Which one? Which is that eventually I said at the age of, can't remember what, this, to my mum, I think I'm going to give up the violin, thinking she'd be really disappointed. She said, thank goodness for that. <laughs> Well, I mean, there you go. There is evidence of what it takes to become a concert violinist. I know, but you need. And then this guy with a stick. I was just. He comes out at the end and gets all the applause. I think this is highly unfortunate. I just want to say to the conductor community that I'm distancing myself from these remarks. You're you're on the side of the few conductors. Mm. I'm on the side of the many orchestral musicians. No, I'm on the side. Who have to sit there while the conductor gets all the applause. I'm on the side of the many musicians and the few conductors. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is that there is a nip in the air, mm. which means it is coldish water swimming time. What's your little gizmo saying? Fifteen point two. I did half. I did thirty-five minutes actually yesterday in fifteen point two, which is quite good. With, it's very bracing though. With only um, swimming Thong? trunks, only only swimming trunks. No, and I'm quite tempted by the no gloves, no socks gambit this year. I don't quite know why. I mean, it just is a sign of my sort of slightly masochistic, yeah, masochistic tendencies. I mean, there were only like two people swimming, so it was pretty. I could have gone on the banks of the Mersey. You could. In the Mersey, rather. Uh, somebody said to me, "Did you?" Go, when I was doing some book signing, they said, did you? And I said, no, I didn't bring me, me togs. It sounds like you don't need them. I don't think I should go without any togs. I think I think that might be, I might be overdoing it. I'm not yet a member of the naturist community. <laughs> not that I'm against the naturists. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. To start our conversation, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Dr. Larissa Corder, who is an obstetrician and gynaecologist. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. When you were at medical school, what made you choose to specialise in the area of women's health? I'd always had an interest in terms of how I perceived women just didn't really have the same opportunities and access to many of the same things as men. And 
having grown up in former Yugoslavia, which of course at the time, so when I was eight, went through a, a massive conflict, a war, I really sort of got to see how women were disproportionately affected in the sense that a lot of the war crimes that were committed were committed against women. And also when it came to raising families, ensuring that they were safe and that they were able to function and carry on, the brunt of those responsibilities really did fall on the women. And so I guess that passion was instilled from me from ever since I was a girl. And in medical school, it just got bigger. And learning about all these different aspects of health, I also realised that women's biologies respond very differently to men's and are different. And it was just something that really intrigued me and fascinated me too, and I wanted to learn more. And and can I ask you to explain what seems like a paradox, which is that women live longer on average, Mm. but they spend more of their lives in poor health. Mm. What are the factors behind that? What we do know is that women generally on the whole tend to suffer from a greater number of chronic health conditions throughout their lives and that they spend longer in poorer health compared to men. There's a couple of factors that feed into this. And I think it really sort of starts off from a young age for a woman. So from the time she is a girl and starts to have periods, women are routinely told that having period pain is a normal thing. And you should just put up with it and you shouldn't moan and you don't necessarily need to go and see anyone about it. So when you have that sense of what's normal, but in fact is abnormal, instilled in you, any sort of variation to that and any pain that you might experience going on with your body, you're sort of more bound to normalize and trivialize. And hence you don't go and present to the doctor on time. And when they do, then they face a whole lot of gender bias, which goes on within healthcare. And what does that look like? There's lots of features to this. So if you look at the studies and the research which is done, we know that when women present to A&E with pain, for example, they tend to wait longer to be seen. And then when they're given painkillers, those painkillers tend to be much less effective than the ones that are given to men. So they get fewer painkillers and also the ones that they do get given are not necessarily as strong as they should be. And I think there's this general perception that goes on within the medical profession that somehow if a woman presents with symptoms, you know, she's bound to be potentially exaggerating or overestimating them. But here's the thing that, you know, women being treated unfairly and in a biased way in terms of, being told that their pain isn't real, it's all in their heads or not being provided with the correct treatment or even the correct referral, directly not only feeds into making those mental symptoms worse and their emotional health worse, but again, through recent research, we know that it also makes them physically worse as well because being discriminated against directly feeds into their neural networks and pathways and can make that pain a whole lot worse and make them much more sensitive to pain and the way their brain perceives the pain. Is it about illnesses or conditions that are specific to women or is it Mm. also about conditions that are Mm. not necessarily specific to women? But It's both, actually. So if we look at the universal conditions, for example, and if you take the area of 
heart attacks and cardiology. So again, we know that heart attacks present very differently in women compared to men. So whereas men will tend to get more of the classical chest pain symptoms and pain radiating down the left arm, with women, that's quite rare. They'll tend to get sort of, um, you know, nausea, vomiting, extreme fatigue, that they'll get different symptoms to that, that won't necessarily be recognised as a heart attack. Um, And I actually have an older friend who she was in the middle of having a heart attack and had gone to her GP to be seen. And her GP didn't even think that he should do an ECG. So she was sent home and it was only through her own insistence that she eventually was referred to a hospital and and her life was saved. Um, So we're talking about things that are going on on this very dramatic level where women are not necessarily getting these life-threatening diagnosis and having this intervention on time that can save their lives. But when we talk about conditions specific to female health, so say, for example, endometriosis, which is an area that particularly fascinates me and I do a lot of activism in, you know, that is specific to women. However, it takes on average eight to 10 years to get a diagnosis of endometriosis. Now, yes, endometriosis can present in lots of different ways, but the prevailing symptom with endometriosis is lower abdominal pain and pelvic pain that women, by the way, tend to completely underestimate. I'm yet to meet a woman <laughs> that exaggerates her pain. I really am. I always say this and I'm still yet to meet that I, I'm always exaggerating mine. <laughs> me too, me too. Definitely. Like Ed and I are both probably yeah, actively yeah, yeah. suppressing yeah. the urge to ask you about yeah, our yeah, various yeah, yeah. pain. I think, no, I, think that's, well, I don't think that would be appropriate. No. Yeah. But, you know, we're, we're real yeah. heroes for not yeah. bringing them up. Exactly. <laughs> so what are the solutions? Obviously, conversation is important in the raising of these issues, mm. especially within the medical profession, to get people to see that this gap in, in treatment, in diagnosis exists. But is there more than that that could be done? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a start to talk about it, to acknowledge it, to not be afraid to accept, you know, this is going on and we need to fix it. We need to do something about it. And thankfully, you know, we've just seen the Women's Health Strategy launch, which is specifically going to be focusing on making women's um, healthcare better. And th- this is uh, research that the government are doing into women's experiences with Yes. And I think they've been inundated with, you know, a huge influx of uh, responses and experiences that women have shared about how they felt misunderstood, misdiagnosed, mistreated. But, you know, it's also about improving access to healthcare generally overall. So, you know, I work specifically in the field of fertility, and we all know that getting funding for that is a huge issue for many, many couples um, and many women who are single and, you know, wish to do this. Um, and they often have to fork out a whole load of money that they just have to find themselves out of nowhere, you know, to be able to have a baby or to proactively protect their fertility in the future. You mean if, if men were having IVF, mm. then it would be much more generously provided for, you think? Well, I mean, let's put it this way. If you look at the amount of funding and research that goes into erectile dysfunction compared to conditions like endometriosis, <laughs> that kind of answers your question that, you know, mm. we generally tend to focus a lot more on men's healthcare issues. And I'm not saying they're not important. Of course they are. Um, but we need to understand that women's health issues are just as important and that women are not getting these diagnoses on time and they're not getting the correct treatment that they need as well. Now, the menopause is obviously something that is starting to get a discussed a bit more now, but why do you think it's been underexplored for so long and and do you think things are really changing? Well, again, I think it's one of these taboo issues, one of these things that, you know, culturally and societally for ages, we've 
kind of found too shameful to discuss. And I think a lot of it is down to, again, women feeling too embarrassed to talk about certain things, unable to approach their GPs about certain issues, often getting dismissed over their symptoms or not given the correct treatment. So we we are now aware, thankfully, through lots of documentaries and people like Davina McCall, who are really sort of pioneering this movement, that women are not issued with HRT um, when they should be, and that HRT can actually be incredibly useful and sometimes life-changing and life-saving in itself. What you see happening with the menopause is that women just sort of tend to put up with the symptoms um, and feel that they shouldn't make a big fuss over it or a big deal over it. But actually, these symptoms can be incredibly debilitating, not just to themselves, but, you know, um, when it comes to their relationships, their their families, being able to function in the workplace. Um, You know, these are things that are very real for so many women. And menopause doesn't have to be this terrible, awful period in your life. It can actually be quite the opposite. It's supposed to be a period of time when women are supposed to really step into their power and feel empowered. So why don't society support that? Because at the moment, I'm guessing um, it still involves a lot of self-advocacy and knowing how to uh, navigate the health system in a certain way, which perhaps a certain amount of privilege goes along with that as well. Yes, totally. And, you know, whereas I always tell women to advocate for themselves, I really do often think about, you know, why should they have to do that? Yeah. (laughs) Why should they have to feel like they're on a campaign trail all of the time just to get decent access to quality healthcare, the correct diagnosis and treatment on time? It just really shouldn't have to happen. And I really think that we can do a whole lot better given, you know, how much we have in terms of research, in terms of what we know already. There is so much more to do, but yet I think we need to act on those things that we know. We need to act on that research and that data and really start implementing some of those changes. And and I'm hopeful that the women's health strategy and the way it's being prioritised will go some way towards doing that. Jeff has a utopia on the podcast called the Jeffocracy. Is it just just mine now? Is yeah. it? Yeah. Um, some uh, ideas about alternatives for prime minister. Which we if you're disowning oh, it. Which we're we're hoping will um, uh, usher in a new era of uh, gender health equality. Um, apart from deposing Jeff, which is something I'd obviously <laughs> fully support. Um, uh, if you were a secretary of state for health, what would be the issues you'd focus on, or the first policies you'd focus on? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> carries a lot of responsibility um, the answer to this question, right? So um, look, I would say one of the first things that we need to do is start addressing healthcare and health from a young age. I think we need to teach it properly in schools, things like endometriosis and periods. It shouldn't just be girls. Men need to be informed as well. And I see that all the time because so many men, you know, Um, also approach me on social media and ask me how they can actively support their partners. And also when it comes to the medical system, I think that we need to dismantle some of these old-fashioned, patriarchal, archaic views around, you know, health and viewing bodies just as systems, paying much more attention to mental and emotional health, taking it seriously and doing something about it. Well, listen, uh, Dr. Larissa Corder, it's been great to have you on. Thank, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me as well and covering such an important subject. With us now is Dr. Eleanor Cleghorn, who is a feminist cultural historian and author of Unwell Women, A Journey Through Medicine and Myth in a Man-Made World. Eleanor, hello. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks so much for um, for taking the time to talk to us. And the book is fantastic. It's a 
fascinating history of medicine and, and how it has failed women over the centuries. It goes way back to ancient Greece. So I guess just to to start, why is it important to be looking at women's health through a kind of social, cultural, political lens rather than a, a medical one? Because medicine throughout its history has always been about people, you know, about people's lives, about people's experiences. It's not just a history of clinical advancements and scientific progressions. So it's really important, I think, when we're looking at some of the issues that women face in the present day around navigating their health conditions, their diseases and illnesses, that we really trace this back and try and unpick some of the factors throughout medicine's history that have got us to where we are today. You know, these issues that have cast a really long shadow. And from the very beginnings of medicine's history, we see that women or a, or a female body or a woman in society is essentially a reproductive vessel. Women had very few other options for how they could use their bodies, how they could use their minds. So this really gets sort of laid down in ancient Greece during the time of Hippocrates, the legendary physician. Of oath fame. Absolutely, of the oath fame. It's striking you use that phrase that it casts a shadow. It's stuff that is pervasive in the modern day. And you, um, both in the introduction at the end of the book, you talk about your own experiences. When talking about the book and your work, you found that it's resonating with other women in the present day. And I, I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about your experience and then the reaction you've had to talking about that experience. Of course. So I was diagnosed in 2010 with an autoimmune disease called lupus. And around 90% of sufferers of lupus across the globe are women. And I was diagnosed with this disease after about 10 years of experiencing chronic pain and other mysterious symptoms. And every time I would go to see a doctor, I was given some version of a narrative about this pain being my fault and this pain being caused by some attribute of my being female, of my being a woman. So I had various responses, including, um, you know, the typical, you're just hormonal, you're anxious, you're paying too much attention to your body. I was told I was overly emotional. And when I was eventually diagnosed, it was after a really complex and very challenging pregnancy in which my unborn son had a heart condition. I was tested to see what was happening in my body that might be causing this. And it turned out that I had some immune markers that suggested I had this disease. And when I was medicated and cared for properly for the first time, in my life after my pregnancy, which, by the way, all ended well and healthily. My son was fine, thank you to our wonderful NHS. When I started to be cared for properly, I was able to ask questions of my consultants. And, you know, these consultants are experts in lupus, so they're granular with this disease. They always kind of said, well, it's just not really known about. It's not ever the first thing that comes up in a GP's mind. It's very complex, it's difficult to diagnose, and it can take up to 
you know, four to six years to conclusively diagnose it. And what kind of stories have you heard from women as they've read the book, as they've heard you talking about the book and the work and the research you've done? Um, it's your, your experience is far from uncommon. Yeah, absolutely. It's far from uncommon. Sadly and frustratingly, so many women have been through this, whether it's for a diagnosis or for support with a another health condition or an issue that they have around their health and well-being. So writing my story in the context of I am one of many felt meaningful. You know, it felt like this is a meaningful thing to do with this story. I wanted to sort of extend the sense of, look, whatever's happened to you is not your fault. This is systemic, structural, historical. So I've had some absolutely incredible responses from readers that have been an utter privilege to read. Some really funny, some just tear-inducing, some really heartbreaking stories, and some that are so close to my own. And what about the reaction from the medical community? Not not just to the stories and the research in the book, but also the, the data you present. Have you encountered a defensiveness, or has there been much in the way of acknowledgement that change needs to happen and ideas of, of how that might happen? Unsurprisingly women doctors in the NHS and especially in NHS trusts that are really working hard to support women who are often more neglected than other women within the sort of scheme of good health. I haven't experienced much in the way of pushback, luckily, thankfully. I hope that's because What I really wanted to show in this book was it's not the fault of individual actors within the health system. This, I'm not trying to lay the blame at the feet of every, you know, sort of white-coated god of a male doctor. What I'm trying to show is that even professionals who are working within the health system at the moment, their roles are impacted by the structural, systemic, baking in of certain prejudices, mythologies, and misbeliefs. You know, this is also impacting their work. But so are the pressures that are placed, especially on our NHS, by, you know, diminished resources, especially in maternity care and midwifery. And uh, you write in the book and you mention there about how this gap can disproportionately affect, for example black women. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because I was quite shocked to read that a lot of myths still exist within medicine. So in the 19th century, with some of the advancements that were being made into gynecological surgery, some of the key moments in medicine's history were performed by an American surgeon who essentially used the bodies of enslaved young women in the American South as specimens to experiment on. And it's a really, really harrowing moment in medicine's history. And it's it's awful to read about, but it's incredibly important to face up to, not just the fact that this happened, but also to think about why it was able to happen and why it was justified. There were horrendous misbeliefs, racist misbeliefs perpetuated by certain anthropologists and by people who condoned ideas of uh, racial biology, you know, this sort of false science that there is a biological difference between 
white people and people of colour, which is completely false. And some of the ideas around this were extremely dehumanising and they essentially suggested that black people were not capable, according to these racist anthropologists, of feeling any pain at all. And of course, this was a myth that was perpetuated to justify the enslavement of people under chattel slavery, but also to justify the dehumanising treatment within society of Black people, Asian people, ethnically diverse people. And what we see now, how we see this resonate is in ideas that are still present in implicit bias, that black people feel less pain than white people. There's been studies that have been recently conducted to show that these prejudices are alive and well, and we see the consequences of these prejudices in things like the woeful disparity that exists in maternal mortality and morbidity rates between black women and white women. We see this in the way often when black women are denied not just their own symptoms and their own pain, but also their own knowledge and education about their bodies. And one of the most important things that I think medicine has to face up to is it's, it has to reckon with the implicit racism, the racism baked into its past, and really look at how this might continue to affect how women especially are treated in medical encounters. Something I just wanted to touch on is the the way in which women have been excluded from medical research over the years. Can you talk to us about some of the reasons behind that and then why that's ended up being so dangerous? So what we see, again, from this insistence that women are reproductive is that a paternalistic protection of women's reproductive function has actually meant that they have been exempted from many clinical biomedical trials over time. And part of the reason for excluding women is because of the scandal around the drug thalidomide, which caused birth defects. And part of the failure of thalidomide was that it was not thoroughly and properly tested. And claims were made about it that should not have been made about it. So in order to protect women from this happening to them again, they were blanket excluded from most clinical trials that would involve them taking some kind of medication. So what we then have because of this is a complete sort of dearth of understanding about the way that certain drugs affect women differently, about the way that certain diseases progress possibly in women differently. And we see this in many pain medications that were not adequately tested on women or even on, you know, female mice. So, you know, in order to have this sort of equitable medical future that I hope for, the way that information is gathered, the way that medical science is created in the first place also has to redress its inherent biases. Well, I, I recommend that people read the book. It, it's uh, it's really illuminating. It's called Unwell Women, A Journey Through Medicine and Myth in a Man-Made World. Dr. Eleanor Cleghorn, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. It's been a pleasure. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. 
Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. To talk further, I'm delighted to say that we're now joined by India Rackerson, who is a journalist, documentary producer, and indeed the creator and presenter of the podcast 28-ish Days Later. India, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you both for having me. So excited to talk to two guys about this, really. Well, that's what I was I mean, about aren't to we, say. Aren't we just great guys for engaging with this issue? No, yeah, I think no. we deserve a lot of credit. Uh, we should make it about us. Exactly. <laughs> Why do you think it's important to get everyone involved in talking about these questions? Oh, it's just, it's interesting, isn't it? I think women's health is women's health, um, but they're not, it's not women's issues it's everybody's issue I think we've got a brilliant contributor in the program Dame Leslie Regan and she says you know when you get it right for women everyone in society benefits and I do think that's really true and I think it's just important that we sort of discuss the whole thing all together you know because over 50% of doctors are men and many women are married to men or in relationships with men or you know there are fathers and grandparents and I think, you know, women's health has been underfunded, under-researched, under-reported since the very beginning, arguably. And it's just about time that that changed. And the only way that we can change that is if everybody is on board. The podcast is for people who menstruate primarily, but it's more about just showing everybody the kind of crazy, brilliant science of the female reproductive system in the female body. It is a big old change, though, because, I mean, I'm certainly of an age, and I suspect you are as well, Ed, where the girls in the class were separated out to talk about periods, you know, taken into a separate room. My mum, her whole life, like, I I never saw sanitary products. They they were there, but they were hidden away. So just in our lifetimes, the the change Mm. is quite dramatic if you think we're sitting here on a podcast talking about something the BBC are putting out about menstruation that's that's a a big old change I think in in a relatively short space of time yeah I mean yes but also knowing that the sad truth is that all of those things you've just mentioned still happen you know girls and boys at school are still sometimes separated for conversations around periods or sex so that still happens does it yeah it does in some places and Lots of people still hide their period products. Um, You know, people are sort of 
feel a bit of a shame about them. You see, so so I was a problem using that phrase, sanitary products. Well, I mean, are things a problem? It's not your fault, Jeff. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> it's a learning moment for me is what it is. Industry has told us that we should be really quiet about it. It's a sanitary problem. I remember going at school, sort of, you could buy packets that were extra quiet so that when you went to the toilets, no one would be able to hear you open a pad or a tampon. So it's just quiet and it's secret. And that's like a really great opportunity to tell women to keep really, really quiet about this. So I hear you. I think it's great. Some things are changing and, you know, we've got to be really optimistic about that. But at the same time, it was still quite a shock to people that I was making this series. Tell us a bit more about the podcast. It's called 28-ish Days Later. What what made you want to make it in the first place and what have some of the reactions to it been? I was thinking about trying to have a baby. I was 33 and I thought, I just wonder if, before I start, I just wonder, I'm quite a curious person. I thought, is there anything I can be doing to just maybe make that opportunity a bit smoother? You know, like, is, is there something I can be doing for my health, for my body? Um, I've known lots of people who've like struggled or it's taken a little time. And this is like, I don't want to make this at all a conversation about fertility because all it was was a starting point for me in that I started reading and reading. And the more I read, the more I needed another book to find out more information. The knowledge that I didn't have as a curious 33-year-old woman with access to books, I just didn't know. I actually really didn't know the fundamentals of what was happening inside my body on a monthly basis for the last 15, 20 years. The moment I thought up the idea, I was was like, oh God, I've got to get this commission really quickly because actually it's a blindingly obvious thing to do, I think. I'm so thrilled the BBC were like, yeah, let's do 28 parts, break down the whole menstrual cycle and look at the, you know, the amazing hormones and what happens in the body. And if we sort of just get caught up on the bleeding, caught up about talking about taboo, we don't move the conversation on to actually look at like, what what is our experience as people who menstruate and how can we kind of best use powerful knowledge to our advantage? And what's the reaction been like? Yeah, um, uh, just incredible. I mean... Still daily, I get Instagram DMs and emails and tweets of people saying that it's changed their life. And it's not very often you get to make a piece of work where every day somebody gets in contact being like, this has changed my life. Whether it's made them feel more confident, more powerful, more like in control of their day to day at work or when they visit the doctor. Loads of people saying that they've been to the doctor and sort of put their foot down a bit and asked for referrals and then gone on to get diagnoses of endometriosis or fibroids or PCOS. I've also had doctors and obstetricians and gynecologists get in touch saying this is sort of better than some of the syllabus that we have on this. And that shocks me rather than delights me. And lots of men getting in touch saying, Thank you. Like it's, you know, opened up conversations in their household or with their partners or with their daughters. I'm just like incredibly proud of everything that the team did. Well, there's an episode where India, you 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 have the conversation with your own partner, which is a great episode because it's it's something that happens in your body. You're in this most intimate of relationships with your partner, and yet that cycle is something that doesn't really get talked about perhaps outside of the period. Mm. I think it's a really important discussion to have and we really enjoyed having it. And, you know, it it was, we sort of start off by talking about the awareness of um, menstrual blood as like a really obvious start point, starting point for the conversation. But then it's more, it's sort of, 
how does our relationship exist within the cycle? You know, when estrogen is an extremely powerful hormone, I'm actually on day 15. So you've got me on a really good day, by the way, feeling pretty good about myself. <laughs> it's like, there's a three day window, but also estrogen is really powerful. And there's a three day window where I massively overcommit to everything. And then come two weeks when I'm feeling, you know, I feel I get really quite bad anxiety just before my period. And I haven't helped myself in the two weeks before. So it's even just things like, you know, my partner's aware of that. And I come back one day and I'm like, this person got in touch about this and I'm going to do this and da 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 And he could be, maybe just, maybe one of those things or think about where you're booking them in or space them out. See how you feel out. in a few days. Yeah. You know, it's not about weaponizing our periods or making it like we have an excuse to feel angry or sad or anxious. It's more just letting that be present and uh, like an honest useful conversation within a relationship when when you think back over the episodes what are your favorite things that you've learned about this cycle that's happened in your own body for these years so my very sort of literal vision of the uterus you know at school you draw that sort of triangle and then you've got the fallopian tubes attached and then they lead into the egg and then so it's all sort of like a self-contained little system and one of the first things I found out is that those fallopian tubes are not attached to the ovaries at all. They sort of waft around. The ovaries are plumbed actually into the sort of pelvic cavity of your body. But not only that, they, the fallopian tubes know when an egg's been released and they sort of tickle their way over to the ovary and then retrieve an egg down. And there's also some evidence that if for one, for one reason or another, one of your fallopian tubes isn't working, they actually think the other fallopian tube can cross over to the other ovary and retrieve an egg and wow that it that's wow. totally changed for me how I sort of think about what's going on inside my body I'm like that's quite an incredible it's a very it's a really unique organ I also think I just you know I women are definitely accused of being hormonal but one of the really interesting episodes looks at the predictability of hormones in the female and male body and actually whilst female hormones work on a cycle and change the male hormones testosterone in particular, is so wildly unpredictable. It's so reactive to social situations, environmental situations. Something that I really took away from the series is that men are much more hormonally unpredictable than women are. Whilst we have a cycle of hormones, ours are pretty predictable. Maybe that's your sequel. Yeah. Wouldn't that be fascinating? Just to finish, like from your experience of making this podcast and, and, and what it opens up actually when you start having these conversations about women's health give us a note of optimism for the future like what does it do when you start thinking about and talking about women's health issues like this do you know what I think one of the great things is that if you tell a woman some powerful information she always shares it and uh you know that's never kept to themselves in my experience and a lot of a lot of what's happened with the podcast is that people have listened to it once they've listened to it again with their cycle and then they've shared it with every woman they know so that I, I think like that's obviously within the podcast but I think that's just a great thing generally in society that just kind of gets echoed and repeated so like give, giving powerful information to women is a really brilliant thing to do also you know we do have some there is there are some things good things that are happening um that I can report for you which is good. So obviously in Scotland in the summer that became the first country in the world to make period products free for all which is obviously like a wonderful thing not just for combating period poverty and shame but also you know just trying to move 
the menstrual cycle away from it being a sort of consumer choice or a consumer issue. I think that's that's a really exciting thing. The UK got its first women's health ambassador for England in June, Dame Leslie Regan, who is brilliant. She's in our final episode of the podcast. So that's a good sign. But again, you just find yourself saying first ever and it's 2022 and you think, why is this the first ever? Mm. And there was the very first, the very first women's health strategy was also published this year. And again, it just makes me sort of want to laugh and weep, but also celebrate at the same time that it's the very first. Um, that makes a lot of sort of recommendations. It's it's sort of encouraging back women's health hubs, which would be brilliant. So a place where you can go as a, as a woman to have your menstrual health looked at or to talk about IVF or to talk about menstrual disorders or, you know, a breast screening, anything like that. But it's one place. The strategy also addresses the very shameful IVF postcode lottery, which I think has been, you know, crippling and cruel for so many people for so long. Well, it recommends a greater focus on things like endometriosis, PCOS. Um, and then also that there should be specific training on women's health and that will become mandatory for all doctors, all graduating medical students in 2024. But again, you think, was women's health not mandatory before in medical? I, you know, I would love, I, I mean, my, I'd love to go and talk to someone about that. Well, look, um, India Rakison, it's been fantastic to talk to you. I'm going to go off and listen to your podcast it's really good um i hope our listeners do too in the meantime thank you so much for joining us oh such a pleasure and i hope those conversations kind of crop up in your households as well so what did you think it's astonishing that that gap exists and that it's so dramatic i was really taken by what larissa said about how a man and a woman can go to a and e and present with exactly the same symptoms and a man will wait a much shorter amount of time often and be prescribed stronger painkillers. And it's it's so interesting then to think about Eleanor and and India and, and the the history of this because no doctor is thinking, oh it's only a woman, I'm gonna prescribe these these yeah. pink painkillers. So it's not conscious, but the you know the history of it looming so large. I, I do wonder as well, talking to India, how much the squeamishness that some men have, especially in a country where uh, a lot of people running the country have often been to all-male boarding schools. I wonder how much that has slowed us down. I think what's so interesting to me is the way that it's not really even talked about very much, this issue. It's not talked about as a gender discrimination issue, very, at least not very often, is it? There are specific illnesses or conditions which might be specific to women, um, but but it's not like holistically the you know we talk about gender pay gaps and other gaps, but we don't talk very often about this aspect of discrimination, do we? No, and it was interesting with all the guests the power of just talking about it and how common an experience it is, especially when you get into this endometriosis and how difficult it is to receive a diagnosis. Been nearly a decade, but it's also basically, isn't it, that our worlds were constructed on the basis of men being dominant. And they are, our worlds are, to lesser or greater extents, adapting, but it still was originally in a man's brain image, wasn't it? Yeah, so how, however much yeah. attitude shift, yeah. that you, you still have to look at the foundations. Exactly. exactly. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. 
So it was our fifth anniversary last week, and we, we decided that it might be time to refresh. The our... presenter, but you couldn't find anyone else. Yeah. So, so so you decided not to refresh the presenter. And refresh the theme music yeah. instead. Yeah. And, and then we had this idea of involving our listeners yes. in that. And to help us with this process yes. and to give you some advice and pointers, we are joined by a maestro. Yes of theme song composing. Yes. Uh, Dan McGrath, hello. Hello, hello. Dan, the man with the theme song plan. One of the ladies in the local flower shop referred to me as the bloke that does plinky plonky music. Oh, you do plinky plonky music. (laughs) You can call it what you like. Yes, absolutely. We need some plinky plonky music. (laughs) I'm right in thinking that the most famous example of uh, the, the plinky plonky music that you've been involved in is the Strictly Come Dancing theme music. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, that, that'll be that'll that'll go to my grave with me, I guess. Can I ask a question that yes. just does occurs to me, and I've probably put my footing in some massive way. Who was the person who used to do lots of those BBC theme tunes in the 1970s, 80s? Oh, that'll be Ronnie Hazelhurst. Ronnie Hazelhurst. Or Alan Hawkshaw. Alan Hawkshaw was the other one who'd written a, a ton of those as well, hadn't he? What would Ronnie Hazelhurst have done? <laughs> is this like what would Jesus do? I mean, is this all media composers sit in their studios and as the brief come in, they all go, "What would Ronnie Hazelhurst have done? What would Ronnie do? <laughs> what would Ronnie do?" <laughs> I honestly, I honestly don't know. Although I have had the pleasure of talking to Tony Hatch, who, if you don't know, is another titan of the media composing world, who wrote the theme tunes to Crossroads, Neighbours, Mister and Misses, and a ton of others, as well as obviously songs back in the sixties and seventies, and. Um, he was very lovely about the Strictly theme. He said, because it has what I would refer to as a fatal opening, i.e. The, the opening happens and you know exactly what's going on and what's going to happen next. Okay, so I've got a multiple choice uh, on Ronnie Hazelhurst. Uh, Ronnie Hazelhurst composed one of these three theme tunes. Was it A, Butterflies, B, The Generation Game, or C, The Good Life? It wasn't Butterflies, because that's the Dolly Parton song, isn't no, it? No, I'm. I was going to say butterflies because it feels like that sort of light touch that Ronnie Hazelhurst had. What was the third one? The Generation Game, The Good well, Life. Bruce sang the Generation Game, didn't he? And probably had something to do with it because actually Bruce did pitch an idea for the Strictly theme. I foxed you both. Is it the Good Life? No, it's the Generation. <laughs> is it really? There you go. Yes, it is. Da, 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 Life is another game. Jeff Lloyd, right back at you. Life. Dan, when you say Bruce pitched an idea for the Strictly theme, was that to you? And then did you have to diplomatically listen to it and say, <laughs> oh, we'll take that on board, Brucey? No, Andrew Lloyd Webber had to send something to, to us once, which was quite funny. That's another story. No, we, when, they were, when we were asked to pitch for it, we knew he'd pitched an idea and maybe a couple of others. How blank is the piece of paper when you get asked to pitch for something like that? You receive a brief, which will, even if it has absolutely no musical direction on it, will have signposts that are going to take you towards potentially what you're going to end up writing. So like in the case of your show, if you're looking for a new theme tune, you you need to write a brief. You need to come up with a set of things that are going to take people that are going to write for you down a certain path. So, Can I just say, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I've got further information about Ronnie Hazelhurst. <laughs> I'm obsessed. Uh, Go on then. <laughs> uh, okay, he did the two Ronnies, he did Only Fools and Horses, he did Three Up, Two Down, he did Blankety Blank. I mean, he did quite a lot. Blankety Blank's a great one. Yeah. And of course, the, the classic uh, onomatopoeic, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da, blankety-blank, blankety-blank. 
you know, yeah. it's like, who wants to be a millionaire? You know, it's all that. You, you, you think about that sometimes when you've got the title of the show. Oh, should we be thinking about that with the title of our show then, Reasons to be Cheerful? Should there be a little motif or melody that can go with those words? It's up to you. It depends whether you want that. You know, you want something that potentially reflects reflects who you two are something nerdy well i don't know i was going to say well jeff's you know we're talking the beatles if we're talking jeff lloyd so is it guitar driven is it jangly and is it smiley but then you did uh, desert island disc didn't you ed what was your what was your yes. top two or three songs on that oh i got i got totally done in for my musical choices <laughs> angels i chose and it but everyone was rude about me josh ritter ed's quite into abba you were talking about going to the show i heard that ed, is that a genuine thing or is that a sort of politician's phoned in answer from a pr person are you genuinely into abba i'm 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 through my arctic monkeys phase <laughs> i mean honestly honestly i will now bore on to you dan for hours about this it was absolutely brilliant and also and also I, I was at the Labour Party conference and I was boring on to lots of other people about it and they were like okay shut up with your Abba voyage I, please, I, I, you know stop going on I'm about. with you it's undeniable how brilliant those guys were writing those songs so is it is what we're looking for then is the note pop with a dash of melancholy yes I think it may well be I think I want something vibrant get up and go dance while doing the hoovering steps meets Abba meets high energy high energy i just i worry because jeff's got a, a good dollop of cynicism in there which you've got to obviously reflect as well i think you don't you know yeah. you want although with the irony of having something ridiculously happy is 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 yeah you could absolutely go with that couldn't you what's what's the most positive sounding of all the instruments it's ukuleles and whistling isn't it like pure sort of Mm. You know, it's it's lovely. There's nothing wrong with it. It's, a little bit twee. It's twee, but it's positive, and it's and it, and the the clarity of of a of a ukulele and the whistling. It's simple. It's clean. It's it doesn't say a lot. Of course, that's the other thing. If you've got lyrics or you've got voiceover, you've got to think about what the music's doing underneath all that. The music's got to be sympathetic to that and not get in the way of it. Ours could be like, give me an R, give me an E, give me an A, give me an S, give me an O, give me an N, give me an S, give me a T, give me an O, give me a B, give me an E, give me an C, give me an H, give me an E, give me an E, give me an R, give me an F, give me an L. What does it spell? Reasons to be cheerful. Thank you for listening and good night. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I won't give up the day job. And Dan, I think that slightly concerned me. Is it a jump the shark moment if you change your theme music after five years? Is there is a good precedent for refreshing a theme tune? What if the shark's already been jumped? <laughs> can, can we jump back the other very, way? I mean, I would say it's a very... I'm trying to think where, where and when that's happened. I can't think of one. I was once asked to... When the F1 went from the BBC to Sky and to Channel 4, a friend of mine, a motoring journalist, contacted me and he said, would you write a piece on on why they should stick with the chain? You know, the Fleetwood Mac track, the chain, was the BBC theme tune for F1. And it was simply like, if you dump the music, you're in trouble. There's a visceral connection with the music. There's a connection with the music. And this, I'll get on my high horse now, my hobby horse, because... Theme tunes, certainly from in the world that I'm in, getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. The Strictly theme's about 36 seconds or something ridiculously long. It's very, very long. And what it does is it sets up the show. It sets up what's going to happen and it lets everybody run in from the kitchen and it lets everybody get ready and get excited. And here we go. We're on. This is great. And in the old days, you had these minute long theme tunes, you know, and... Now everything's quick and we want to get off the break or we want to get out of the continuity and straight into the studio. We've got time to mess about. And so the theme tune is now a sting. It's now five to six to eight seconds. And that's no time for anybody to get used to anything, but that is the way of the world. But 
that connection that people have with theme tunes. And as I meet people and they immediately sing me the 12 notes of the Strictly theme. They immediately go, oh, da, 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 da. That's what they do. And, and they go, hey, because that was me doing it. Well, that, that's you doing the hey that's on, the, doing, that's on the That's me recording. going, hey, ho. But I'll tell you, oh, wow. I've got a little secret for you. So the, in America, we reworked it for America. So the American theme was reworked again about three years ago. So it's very, very slightly different for Dancing with the Stars. But the hey and the ho is actually Matt Berry, the comedian. <laughs> because he we were chatting and he said what are you working on and i said i'm doing i'm reworking the strictly theme he said i want to play on it so he sent me this sort of moog synthesizer line which was absolutely ridiculous and unusable because it was so crazy (laughs) and i said to him i know shout hey and ho into your phone send it to me and i'll put it on so if you're in america and you see dancing in the stars that's matt berry doing that so the jumping the shark thing i mean you know what if bbc news changed that theme there'd be a bigger uproar than some of the big news stories of recent you know people would be <laughs> up in arms about it what have you done why have you changed it you know and you'd have to have a really really bloody good reason to change it i think you'd have to have a very very solid reason so we're setting a high bar yeah. we are but we're de- i think we're democratizing it you you must be a fan of that yes. the evolution of theme music yes definitely you think? What do you think about my give me an R, give me an E? Do you think it's in with a chance? Not if I'm judging it, no. Right, okay. When we start receiving submissions, would you be happy to maybe come back and uh, and, and give us your professional opinion on a couple? Yeah, absolutely, yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. nice of him, isn't it? Yeah. Dan, thank you. And thank you for putting up with Ed singing the Strictly theme music down the phone at you and before I think we my, started. Honestly, I think my Ronnie Hazelhurst quiz was pretty out of this world, wasn't it? <laughs> it, was, it was stunning. Thank you so much, Dan. We'll be back in touch. My pleasure, my pleasure, no problem. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Whoa-ho-ho. We're in the outro. We are. Got some good news. Eugene was picked to be a member of the eco team at his school. That is brilliant news. Oh, it was such a relief, Ed. They delayed the decision. It was supposed to be on a Friday and they delayed it until a Monday. Oh, so we had a whole hanging, it hanging was chads. chads, yeah. We had a whole very tense week. Supreme Court. Yeah. Were you thinking of trying to get appeal to Justine? Court, I just, yeah, court yeah, 37. Yeah, yeah, I was just assembling a legal team in anticipation. Don't go for Donald Trump's legal team, by the way. In case you might be thinking. Yeah. On the Sunday. He, he said to me, Dad, if I don't get it, I'm going to try and say congratulations to the person who does and then ask the teacher what I could have done differently. And then I was thinking I'd come home and go to my room and cry for two hours. Oh, no. He went to school in a suit. and He doesn't have school uniform. He went to school in a suit and tie on the Monday morning. Wow. A serious outfit for a serious day. Oh, it nearly killed me. And then you forgot it. And we just all feel so relieved. Wow. Yeah. So what's the responsibilities involved? TBD, but he's got a nice badge. So how happy was he? He's over the moon. He's very, very happy indeed. And in fact, the other day he asked me to contact you to see if Parliament had any powers over the different flavours of Magnum. He did, and you sent me a lovely video. I suggested to you that maybe nationalising Magnum might be the way forward, but I think you're a bit slippery on the issue. Uh, I I think I was sceptical. Um, should we thank our guests? Yes, we should. Uh, thanks to Dr. Larissa Corder, to Dr. Eleanor Cleghorn, and to India Rackerson, and to Dan McGrath for all his tips. Yes. On theme tune songwriting. And do get involved. The email address is reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. 
Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer. She's supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dents and our artwork was Henry designed Cole. By... Are you in a rush? <laughs> I thought you'd never get to the end. It's like the leisure centre story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, He's been Ed Miliband. Oh. What, you were in a rush a second ago? Ooh. Trying to make it an easy exit for you? No, I was trying to make it... Putting a, his coat on? No, I was trying to make a sort of funny, funny, <laughs> baddie, witty badinage. Um, he's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Right. No witty badinage. Right.